0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It's good that there is so much discussion going on now about climate change, but it's the problem that many people see that they don't know how to solve. It's just so big. And so we do need to learn how to deal with this challenge insofar of how it's causing anxiety and then how we can redirect the energy towards managing the anxiety and hopefully adding to the solution or reduction of the climate change itself. Janet Lewis is a psychiatrist associated with the University of Rochester, but mostly in private practice. And she is active with the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. She also speaks widely on the impact of climate disruption on mental health. She kindly agreed to talk to us about these issues. Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Sure, good to be here.
0: This is an enormous topic, and frankly, it's quite worrisome. I wanted to talk about how these fears are affecting patients, but when I started to think about it, it also occurred to me that the mental health community, the providers, individuals, and as people on the same planet, do they feel the same apprehension? do we have any data do you have any sense of how they're approaching it before they start talking to patients about it
1: we don't have data. This is important, as you're saying. It's important that mental health professionals work at coming to terms with this, not only for themselves, but also to be available for their patients. We have some anecdotes now that are describing some patients feeling frustrated with therapists who they don't think are getting it. And so it is important for us to
0: come to terms with this ourselves. It's interesting because when I first started to prepare for this interview, with material is critically important, I began to ask some of my colleagues and I didn't get the enthusiasm that frankly I was hoping I would get from them. So I'm hoping that you and the organizations are helping the therapists so that when the therapists need to help the patients, the therapists have a passion for it rather than being something just mechanical to talk about. And it, it just really bothered me.
1: Right. We're all human beings and I think we're all in various stages of emerging from disavowal, what psychoanalysts call disavowal, knowing and not knowing something at the the same time. We're all kind of in various stages of emerging from that in relation to climate change. This is a situation where there's a way in which the therapist and the patients are in the same boat and it is useful to approach it drawing upon our humanistic traditions, our humanistic existential traditions to be able to, to recognize that we're talking to the patient about something that's part of the human condition that we're all in together.
0: Indeed it is. Patients are coming to us for their problems are actually coming to us for our problems on top of their individual manifestations or reactions to it. Let's talk a little bit. How are climate anxiety concerns manifesting themselves in psychiatric patients?
1: It's coming up in different ways. I mean, first, I think it's important to say, as you were describing, this is a difficult topic. This is difficult material because of the extent of the threat, because of the complexity of climate change. Climate change is about these very complex natural systems, they're also completely intertwined with human systems, human culture, human psychology. So it's very complex. And there's also an urgency involved with climate change. And for many people, that is meaning a sense of moral imperative around climate change. And so all of this makes it a very difficult topic. And as with any difficult topic, as we were saying, the therapist needs to be prepared to hear it, needs to be prepared to be with the patient in the realities of this. Just like with any difficult topic like sex or spirituality, it's more likely to emerge if the therapist is prepared to go there. Most Americans are worried about climate change as you probably know. There are surveys that are done by Yale of the American population in regards to this. At the end of 2018, 29% of the population was alarmed, an additional 30% was concerned about global warming. So most people are worried about this but those surveys that are done by Yale are not clinical assessments, they're not clinical instruments and so there's a lot to be learned learned about the way that this translates into how things present clinically. There are patients who are, are just describing their upset about climate change. There are places where climate change manifests through psychiatric illnesses. I mean, climate distress itself is not a psychiatric and that's very important to understand that it's not pathological to be upset about climate change. It's appropriate to feel upset about climate change. There are places where it can manifest through psychiatric conditions. There was a study in Australia where 28% of patients with OCD were spontaneously reporting sessions and compulsions related to climate change. And what many people are seeing in their offices is that patients who have histories of childhood abuse and neglect are often quite tuned in to how wrong it is that climate change is not being more appropriately addressed. And then there are reports of young people oftentimes who are engaging in in self-destructive behavior out of some hopelessness about the earth. Climate distress is not pathological in itself. It's not in the DSM yet. Perhaps at some point it will be, I mean perhaps it's a V code which would make very clear that it's not pathological in itself but it is an appropriate topic of concern and it can manifest through psychiatric conditions as well.
0: A lot of people here in Florida are beginning to hear over and over and over again that the seas are indeed rising and eventually our coast is going to look quite different and where a lot of people are now living, that will no longer be there. When I speak to the older folks, it's almost as if that belongs to a younger generation. It doesn't belong to the retirees. Do you see shifts in age groups or are the people in, I mean, I don't know if you have hard data for this, but who live in Colorado way up in the air that they don't have to worry about the sea waters rising? Is there a separation of where people live or their cultural background and how they're responding to these climate changes?
1: I think a lot of things go into how people respond. Some of it has to do with how empowered somebody feels generally, how empowered they're going to feel to be able to respond. Some of it has to do with the political identities that people have. For people who have more conservative political identities, sometimes it can be a bit of a heavier lift to to be thinking about something that might imply that government programs are a good idea. And for older people, I know there are older people who you just are kind of just letting younger people deal with this but there are also a lot of older people that are quite mobilized. Grandparents who are very concerned, parents who are very concerned. So it varies a lot among people and, and in that Yale survey, Yale splits up the population into what they call the six Americas. There are those who are quite alarmed and then there are those the other end of the spectrum who are what they call dismissive, who actively oppose climate change information. But then there are a group in the middle. So those in the middle may appear apathetic, but there's good reason to think that they're actually ambivalent. There was a qualitative study done by an analyst of great lakes residents these great lakes residents weren't weren't particularly environmentally active but what she found was that there was a an arrested mourning actually that these people were experiencing in relation to their, their their relationship with their environment. So people may appear apathetic, but that doesn't really mean that that's what's going on. They just may not, you know, as you were saying at the beginning, may not appreciate that they can do things. It's very easy to feel kind of paralyzed in relation to all of this information and to feel either defensively hopeful or defensively hopeless, and and let me explain that. Dr. Elizabeth Haas and Dr. Alexander Trope and myself have a paper that's going to be published that's all about dialectics in relation to climate change, the kinds of polarities that come up, and one of them is hope and hopelessness. You would think that hope would be always a positive thing, but some people engage in hope in a way that denies or ignores difficult realities or talk about hope as a substitute for their own action, and then they can just remain paralyzed, or it's a way to avoid dealing with uncertainty. And similarly, hopelessness, I mean, people just adopting a hopeless stance can be a way of denying or ignoring their own agency. Denying or ignoring the reality of collective agency and avoiding that responsibility. I think when, when people are appearing apathetic, Most of them, I mean, we now have this data from Yale, and actually most people are quite concerned. So most of them just are not yet feeling how effective they could be. And some of the reason for that has to do, I think, with our culture's emphasis on individual agency with a relative lack of emphasis on collective agency. So if you're only thinking in terms of your individual agency, then it's easy to say, well, you know, what's little me going to do? up against global warming but the reality is that we also have collective agency. There's also tremendous power and creativity in joining with other people. That's something that is really important for us to be getting more of an understanding of and appreciation of. This lopsided emphasis on individual agency even seeps into mental health professionals' understandings of things. Think about the serenity prayer, for example. We kind of think of it as this hallmark of sanity, the serenity prayer is essentially encouraging people to think about, well, what can I do and what can be done is not only about what individuals can do, but it's about what can be done when people get together. It's so important to, to move into that kind of engagement in order to overcome the sense of paralysis.
0: Well, I agree with you entirely. And this mirrors the old concepts of politics does begin at home. And when local communities get together, it grows and people can begin to do things, join organizations. One of the things that keeps popping up into my mind, and I find it interesting when I speak to patients, is that I asked them about mental health responses to climate change. Many of them find that an interesting topic, never really gave it any thought. And then I proceed to say, well, what's it going to be like for your children and grandchildren if they are looking at the world that they're growing up in and it is not as safe and cozy and predictable as we would like it to be for them. And that changes their approach and it makes them sometimes, it makes them anxious. Some of them don't like that I bring it up. They have to be done at the right time to the right person, of course. So where do people go? What do teachers do? What do clergy do? What do parents do to help deal with these concerns with themselves and, with their children? Are there resources that they can go to?
1: Yes, lots. First of all, I think it's particularly important as mental health professionals for us to be thinking about the kinds of containment that can be effective for climate-related anxiety. One kind of containment is understanding the complexity of the systems we're dealing with. And when we have complex systems, it means that there's the butterfly effect where what you do may make a difference. And there's also the phenomenon of emergence where systems can move through seemingly chaotic times and get to new ways of functioning, new patterns that work. Then there are also forms of containment that are relational, joining with other people, as I was saying, and agentic actually doing things and spiritual, just about all of the religious groups have groups that that are working on this. There's an evangelical group of people working on climate change let me put in a plug for our website, climatepsychiatry.org, that's the Climate Psychiatry Alliance website. There's a lot of information there and information about ways to get involved. There's also a Climate Psychology Alliance based out of the UK that has a really nice website with information. I think It's important to join with like-minded people and different people are attracted to different kinds of groups. People who are interested in working politically in a bipartisan way, there's a group called the Citizens Climate Lobby. For young people who want to be working with other young people, there's a group called the Sunrise Movement. For parents, there's a group called the Moms Clean Air Force. And then for people who want to work more on their own feelings, the processing of their own feelings, there's a group called the Good Grief Network And there are also workshops called Active Hope Workshops that are done based upon the work of Joanna Macy. I'm glad you mentioned about parents. I mean, one thing was very important for parents to understand, and this is coming up a lot. I mean, I think every mental health professional ought to be able to field questions about how do you talk to kids about this. A lot is falling to parents now as children are seeing the same disturbing headlines that the parents are seeing. It's important to to meet children where they are, find out what they know and what they're actually bothered most by because it's easy to make assumptions about that 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 aren't accurate. It's important to find out where the child is at and to be honest about what's happening, but also to say that a lot of people are working on this, which is true. A lot of very smart people are working on this, but even more than than giving information, to children. It's important for parents to understand that this is a golden opportunity to model how one deals with a very big, very serious problem. How do you deal with a very big, very serious problem? Do you just sort of ignore it? No. You think about what you may be able to do. And so, if the the child comes from school and is sad about they heard about the destruction of the rainforest, well, then the parent could say, "Well, let's let's think about what we could do. Maybe we could plant some trees. Maybe we could write to Congress people, and then engage the child around that, so that the child gets the the modeling and the sense of being with others in this concern." which I think is, is even more important than the kind of information that's given. We all develop within relationships.
0: It gives them more of a fix-it mode than be just simply scared of it mode. That's a very important difference that you make out That we Yes, it's a real problem, so let's do something together to try to fix it as a family, as a starting point. I like the idea.
1: Right. Moving into engagement. So the parent provides honest response, but also this modeling about how we move into engagement when we're dealing with a big problem, even if we can't see how we're going to fix the whole thing. And that's very important here, because this is a complex problem. It involves complex systems. The way that problems are approached in complex systems, what are being called wicked problems is that they require multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary work. They have to be attacked from multiple angles. Of course, nobody can see everything about how to fix it. everybody has a role to play. Mental health professionals were often reframing things and there are some really useful reframes in dealing with climate anxiety. One is that because we're dealing with a complex system like this, part of what that means is that no matter what your skills, interests, fears of influence are, there's a role for you to play. There's something for you to do. Another reframe I like comes from an activist, spiritual teacher, Terry Patton, who likes to say that if the measure of someone's life is the extent to which the positive things they do go on beyond them, then how lucky are we to be alive right now? Well put. We've hit the
0: jackpot. One of the things that I find challenging is that I'll talk to people about it, especially kids, and they don't feel it they read it. They know that it's in South America where the, the rainforests are, are dying or Antarctica but they still get up. They have gasoline. Their air conditioners still work. They have food. It's like it belongs to somebody else and I think part of our problem is to gently and politically and accurately make them feel that no this is part of the world in which you and we all live without turning them into a panic. It's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance for us.
1: Yes it is. This is part of the reason for mental health professionals to do their own grappling with it so that we can be with people in a way that's not just cognitive. Part of the challenge with climate change is that because of its complexity, it requires a lot of reflection. It's an urgent problem, but it also requires a lot of reflection. That means going deep a little bit into one's own values, one's own principles, coming to terms with what we're going to have to give up, as well as coming to terms with the things we care most about that we're going to preserve. And I agree with you that I think it's important to keep working at helping people feel it deeply. But the way to do that that will not just scare people is to do it in a way that is relational, to do it from the humanistic stance of, hey, here we are, we're all in this together,
0: And indeed we are.
1: Yeah, yeah. That again calls upon our more humanistic roots in psychotherapy to recognize this as a human dilemma.
0: You bring so many necessary, fruitful, poignant, insightful issues and walkaway messages that we can really do a lot to help ourselves. And psychiatry in dealing with the psychological aspects of climate change are an essential part of this entire process. Janet Lewis is a psychiatrist and she has for a long time worked on the issues of the mental health aspects, the sequelae, the ramifications of climate change. Dr. Lewis, very interesting. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it.